You are listening to the Marketing Doctor Podcast, the place for marketing insights and intelligence for today's fast-paced business world. The opinions expressed on this program are exactly that, opinions, and therefore subject to debate and discussion at any time. This program is produced by Granite Partners, marketing consultants and advisors for middle market businesses and nonprofit organizations nationwide. For more information, articles, speaking engagements, book purchases, and other services, log on to www.themarketingdocs.com. Now, here's the host of the Marketing Doctor program, Dave Polis. Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Doctor podcast, the program for and about marketers and the practice of marketing in today's commercial America. I'm your host, Dave Polis, the Marketing Doctor, and today's topic is the value of primary market research in the practice of modern marketing. A mouthful, I know, but it's a critical subject, one of many different disciplines that are often overlooked, underexplored, and otherwise neglected that can lead to reduced effectiveness in marketing your product or company. Let's start off with a definition of what primary research is so we're all on the same page. Primary research is any form of research that deals from the original source. When we do customer insight research, we're dealing with customers, people who have interacted with the brand and made the decision to purchase in many cases, or not. Sometimes we'll split off a control group of people who should have but did not make the decision to purchase, and that's another group that we talk to, but it's still primary because they're the lead source of information. It's not somebody else's opinion, it's their opinion, and that's what we want to get. Uh, There's both qualitative and quantitative in primary research. We tend to live more in the qualitative world because we are exploring feelings, emotions, preferences, sensitivities, things that don't intelligize very well. Quant, we use to overlay that and find the depth and the breadth of the problem amongst a much larger population. Um, There are several methodologies for primary research. In-depth interviews is one. Um... Focus groups is another. Also, we use mall intercepts and surveys to find out what basic different sectors are thinking about and feeling about our brand or other brands or products. Um, There are strengths and weaknesses to each of these methodologies, and we'll go through those in a moment. Um, The quant comes in in the survey portion because we need a larger sample, and we try and find out how deep and how broad the problem really is based on the qualitative responses that we've gotten to date. Uh, Strengths of the in-depth interview tend to be that you can focus down and drill down on very specific topics, and it's a very emotional experience, sometimes even cathartic for the respondent, because they haven't really thought about this stuff in any kind of depth before, but now that you've prompted them and walked them through it, realistically they can be in touch with those emotions again and give you exactly what you want, but it takes a while. The downside is that it does take a while, not only to do each interview, but to schedule them. They're very difficult to get people on the phone for an hour, uh, dedicated exclusively to listening and engaging with you and getting in touch with those emotions and being able to um, give them to you verbally so that you have some record of what it is they're thinking and feeling. It takes a while to schedule and it can be expensive because not only is the time involved, but also because you often have to incentivize professionals. If you're trying to survey a group of doctors or lawyers or anyone who bills by the hour, they're going to want that hour compensated for in some way or fashion. So you're going to need to incentivize them somehow. Larger, broader product research doesn't often need as much incentive. $5 gift card will often do it. 
uh, a chance to win an iPad will often do it or other electronic gadget. They're inexpensive. You only have to give away one and it's a good way to get people engaged in thinking about the product. Um, the strengths of survey research are that they really give you a broad range of inputs and they're fairly inexpensive and quick to do. You can get a quick read in about three days off of a survey delivered electronically and really have an idea of where that product should be going and what it should be doing or where that brand should be headed or what people's general feeling is on it and give yourself a couple of, of quick gut checks to make sure that you're on the right track. Now you can use these methodologies for gathering all sorts of data, uh, brand recognition, awareness, media selections, um, color preference, uh, speed of delivery, uh, needs and pain points. You can find all kinds of different things by asking the right questions. And that's really the crux of this whole thing is learning how to ask just the right questions to elicit the data that you need. Now, how do we go about selecting the right methodology for the circumstances we're in? Some of that is practice. Some of it is uh, fail and repeat until we get it right. But you don't want to do that when you're using it for clients or for uh, your own company because you don't have that kind of time. So we're going to give you some real quick guidelines as to how to pick which. If you have a very large customer base and you are very disconnected from that sale, you probably need to start off with some survey research over a broad range of topics and samples so that you can really get a handle on where the, the faults lie or where the, the high spots are. If you have a smaller audience or perhaps a captive audience, if you're a membership organization, a trade association, some sort of a professional organization where you have a fixed sphere of potential members or actual members, probably the qualitative end of things is going to help you more. You've got a fixed field in terms of the, the market penetration you have. You're not likely to move that needle very quickly. And you know who the members are, but you don't know what they're feeling or thinking or what they need. So a quick series of interviews on a much smaller scale in much smaller numbers will be more cost effective and is probably going to elicit the kind of responses you can actually put into practice fairly readily. Um, focus groups we use for testing. It's used after the fact to test campaigns, to test ads, to test new product offerings, to test all kinds of things before they're actually launched. So the sort of like a, a verification of what it is we thought was correct and our read on the initial research, we'll go back and test some of the same things that we, we started off asking to make sure we've met those deficits or built those strengths in the way that is going to respond to the audience. Um, surveys are fast and cheap, but again, they don't dig very deep and you don't get the emotional sense from most of them. They, it's very difficult to elicit emotion or preference from a survey. Everybody picks C. It's pretty straightforward. So selecting the right one it largely has to match the organization and the goals you have for the research, what it is you're trying to find out and what data you need to make actionable decisions. All this is geared towards gathering data. So what kind of data are you gathering? You can make bar charts of surveys all day long, but if you don't know how to interpret them and you don't know what they mean with respect to the goal you set initially, they're not going to help you. You can listen to people talk about a brand all day long, and unless you set out with some very specific points to uncover or some goals that are set up to say, we need to find out X in a definitive fashion. You're going to be listening to interviews and reading transcripts till the cows come home and it's not going to help. So data gathering is not about pulling in every point you can find. It's about pulling in the points that you can measure it readily and that you can use to lead to an actionable decision. If you're doing research for yourself, often it is best to 
present some sort of distance from the respondent. If I call you up and I'm the market researcher from P&G and I want to talk about P&G products, you're far less likely to trash talk or, or downplay your interaction with the P&G brand because you want me to be happy. I work for P&G. I'm obviously proud of my company or I wouldn't be calling. I want to find out anything I can, but people tend to skew to the positive when you're hearing directly from the client company, which is why consultants and outside researchers have a job. Our objectivity and our perspective can bring out those emotions in people that they are not willing to give to the primary entity. We make them anonymous, we make them private, we make them confidential, and we make them comfortable. Therefore, respondents are able to give us what it is they want without fear of backlash or any sort of of, uh, consequence to their actions. It's much easier, it's much more honest, it's much more direct, and we can ask those questions that the company just can't ask without feeling embarrassed. So there's a certain logic to how you ask the questions. There's a certain logic to who asked the questions. There's an even better logic to what those questions mean. If you're asking, are you satisfied with your service? You are going to get lots and lots and lots of yeses. You want to go not only beyond satisfaction, you want to go to the point where they would recommend it to their grandmother, which requires an awful lot more thought, an awful lot more mindfulness, and a lot more emotion put towards your brand. Those are the people you're seeking if you're doing customer satisfaction surveys. If people like your brand and they want to tell you that, they will do so in ways that go far beyond just satisfaction. And you can actually turn those people into evangelists if you do it correctly, just through the research. In fact, sometimes the research itself yields results that you weren't even expecting. We worked with one trade association where they had neglected a market sector of their membership. And simply by asking the research questions of about 15 members, we were actually able to add four members to their roles because someone had paid attention to them. They cared enough to ask some questions. They thought they were members, and when they realized they weren't, based on our questions, they went back and signed up. So if you've been neglecting parts of your market and don't know it, research can be a great way to uncover that sort of thing. Uh, The other side benefits to research and data gathering include what we call off-label or off-brand uses. Um, There are lots and lots of uses for products that you never thought of, that you never designed them to do, that people will pick up and invent themselves. They've taken on the moniker of hack recently. Um, Nobody intended a soda bottle can to turn into a fan blade, but it's been done. I've seen it. They take the top off of a water bottle, chop it up with a razor blade, stick it into a mechanism with a motor, and it turns into a a coffee stirrer or something. Those are off-brand uses. Now, are you going to change the shape and the size and the composition of the cap of your water bottle to, to accommodate that? Probably not. But it can lead to some interesting things because you'll find new target markets to, to market to. You'll find new target audiences that you never thought would use the product in that way. Um, you'll find new ways to exploit or extend that product or that brand further into a different sector. And you can find brand extensions that way. Uh, people knew there was more than one flavor of Coke. At one time, they were seven. So they tried all kinds of things, making flavor extensions, because research told them more than one Coke was going to give them more access to more sectors of the market that didn't like the one. So there's all kinds of ways that gathering this data can be turned into actionable um, material. You just have to do it correctly. And where that comes in is in the analysis. If I'm doing an analysis of a survey, that's fairly straightforward. Regression analysis, um, 
simply tallying and totaling uh, can help a lot. Laying them out graphically and presenting the results is something we'll get to after the break. But if you're going to analyze the results of a series of interviews, that's going to require a different set of skills. That's a very soft skill. You need to listen to the actual interviews. Some of the things that people say are not really what they're saying, and transcripts are only very black and white in terms of what they gather. The words are there, but the meaning is often lost. So I go back and listen to the initial interview tapes myself to make sure we've gathered the nuances that are there, the emotional background, uh, the metadata, if you will, that's hiding in those conversations is where the real clues lie as to where you should go. Um, cleaning up your data afterwards, making sure your sample is legit, making sure that the contact information is clean beforehand, all those things need to go into the logic of doing the analysis. Because if you look at your list and you realize that 90% of them are females between the ages of 25 and 30, you've surveyed one sector and don't have a good representative sample and you're going to have to start over. So you should pick broad sample sectors to make sure that you've covered all the bases and to make sure you haven't left anybody out. That logic should include all sorts of things. We start with the basics. What do they read? What do they like? What do they feel? How often do they use the product? Do they buy it themselves or does someone else buy it for them? Are they the principal purchaser in the household? Those kinds of product questions can get people warmed up and give you clues as to how they acquire the product, what their buying process is, how their purchasing mind works, how much mind share you have in terms of top of mind presentation, and where you fall on the brand hierarchy in their mind. If they only buy your product when it's on sale, that means you're competing as a commodity and you don't want to do that. You want to find a differentiator to make sure that you're not competing on price, you're competing because you're the best or you're the, the most different or you have a key attribute that they want and will become a fan of and rebuy time after time after time. So those are the kinds of insights you're looking for is those emotional triggers. If I hear someone say, oh, I love that brand. And then I ask them the next time, how often do you buy it? And they say, well, I have a coupon. That's really a good indication that they love it when they've got it, but they don't love it and go looking for it. That's a very surface level engagement and you want to try and prevent that if you can because surface level engagement is only going to carry you so far really the driver there is price and if you're not going to compete on price which i don't recommend you're going to end up having to find another way to engage that customer either with packaging or with offers or with some other sort of non-price driven um, extension or offer that's going to get them to buy time after time. They're not in love with the brand. They're just familiar with it. And that's a very different set of, of logic. And that's not a path you want to go down if you're using that for actionable insight, because then you're just duplicating the middle of the road. You're driving to the center, not something you want to do. Uh, we strive for, for peak excellence, and that's what differentiates us in particular as a firm. We also tell our clients that they should strive towards peak excellence or not, depending on what their goals are. But you've got to match the goal to the logic you're using or else you're going to steer to a very different place than you want to end up. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about presenting results. We're going to talk about how the results apply to your actual marketing decision making, why primary research is better and why it's necessary in the first place. Um, we're going to talk about whether you can do your own research or not and whether you should and how to hire a research firm to do some of this stuff for you. If you're going to outsource, there are some specific things you need to look for, some specific skill sets you're going to need to enhance or acquire somewhere along the line so that your research comes in as clean and as biased and skew-free as possible. 
We'll get to that in just a few moments. And right now we're going to hear a few words from our sponsor, ChoicePowerSolutions.com. Nobody likes to think about their electric bill, right? It's just another bill, and you pay it without really thinking about it. That approach could be costing you thousands of dollars a year. But you have a choice. You can choose who supplies your power from a huge list of providers nationwide. Choice Power Solutions can help you find the best rate offered, switch your provider, and start saving you money today, all for free. If you're a business owner and pay your own energy bills, start saving today and lock in your new rate for up to three years. Visit www.choicepowersolutionsmd.com today, select your rate, and we'll handle the rest. Start saving today. Visit www.choicepowersolutionsmd.com. We're back. Welcome back to the Marketing Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Polis, aka The Marketing Doctor. And for this act of the program, we want to talk about how to present the results from your primary research to a select group of audience, including CEOs, uh, clients, boards of directors, other august personages who need to know what you've been up to for the last six months and conducting this research and what you've uncovered. Now, when you present most research, you're presenting quantitative research, which entails lots of numbers, lots of graphs and charts and lines and Venn diagrams and what have you. There are visual things to look at when presenting this kind of research. With qualitative research and primarily with primary qualitative research, there is very little in terms of visual cues that you can go by to actually show this. If you stick a transcript up on the screen, they're going to have to read about two sentences and their eyes are going to glaze over and they're not going to get it. You need to find a way to show that this research actually has some impact on what they're doing and why it's important and what you've uncovered in terms of facts, what you can use to steer your marketing decision making, and how this really is going to help the company be better at what they do, which is marketing products or services. So presenting these results is tricky, but it can be done. The trick is in the language. Often, since it's qualitative research, this is not statistically significant. So you can't say 16% of the audience said such and such. You can say 20% of your sample, but the sample is not large enough in most qualitative, especially for IDIs when the numbers are very small, that you cannot include them as facts as being statistically significant because they're not. Um, you can say that the results suggest such and such. The results indicate such and such. Our sample felt as a, as a whole, you can say that. There are lots of ways to soften and redirect the language so that what you're getting is something that's concrete but not set yet. Um, it's a softer science. It's a lighter version of things. They're not going to have lines and graphs to look at. They're not going to get it. You're going to have to do it with the descriptions alone. Sometimes what happens is we use audio recordings of the actual interviews. Those can be very enlightening and will prove your point nicely. Select a couple of select quotes from the interviews that back up the point you're trying to make, and you will be a long way towards convincing your audience 
that the research was valid, the research is necessary, and it indicates X, so we should move forward with Y. Now, the point of all this information gathering is to apply the results to our marketing efforts. So guess what? We're going to have to connect the dots for the audience when we're presenting and say, we learned X. What does that mean for you? That means Y and Z need to be this way or that way, or we can't do them, or we need to do them twice, or we need to double down. One way or another, you're going to have to find a way to connect your insights as to how you can change the marketing. That means focusing messaging. That means changing media selections. It means using different platforms. It means finding a different color palette. It means brand adjustments in some cases because you're being misperceived. It means changing the way you interact with the audience. It may mean things like packaging for products. It may mean shelf positioning. It may mean bundling with another entity or another product to make sure that the audience is getting what it wants from yours. There are all kinds of ways you can apply these insights to marketing, not the least of which is the off-brand use that we talked about before. Um, now, why on earth would you want to do primary research and why is it better than any other kind? I have two answers for that. One, why would you not do primary research when you can find out exactly what your customer base thinks, feels, likes, and dislikes about your product or service right from the horse's mouth? And two, any research is going to yield better results than guesswork. Even the simplest survey can point you in a direction you didn't know existed if it's phrased properly and it's put out to the proper audience segment. So there's no reason not to do research. The costs involved are often cited as a way to negate research plans. The budget's not big enough. We don't have enough time. Those are basically excuses for we don't want to do it because it's not sexy. I recommend doing research as the basis for almost anything because it's very, very easy to be right when you're going right to the source. It's hard to be wrong when you've got the answers right from the customer. So we'd like to be right and we'd like to make sure that our clients are happy with being right. So we do research. Can you do your own research? I get asked this all the time. Well, why do we need you? Why shouldn't we just do it ourselves? We mentioned this earlier in the broadcast that if you are trying to do your own research, you're going to have two problems. One, the answers are likely to be skewed towards the positive. In other words, you're not going to get a very honest or candid response from a lot of your interviewees or your survey answers because they know that the person on the other end is the person doing the survey is what the survey is about. They're not going to tell you you're terrible because nobody wants to hurt your feelings. They're going to pick the middle of the road because they don't want to offend anybody. They're going to say nice things when nice things are not necessarily warranted and they're going to send you down a rabbit hole. You don't want that. What you want is candid answers with some emotion behind them and some passion behind them and some understanding as to what this is actually going to be about. So, can you do your own research? Sure. Are you going to get really good results you can use? Sometimes. The other offer that we make to all of our clients is that we anonymize everything. We make sure that the audience knows that their responses are not used individually, that they're only used in aggregate in terms of putting together numbers from a, a series or a pool of respondents so that no one's going to stick out. And we find that this provides us with a lot more candid response and a lot more information buried in the same subtext of that interview because they're not afraid to tell us what they don't like. We gather a lot more information from what's wrong than we do from what's right. What's right's easy. We're already doing it. It doesn't drive change. What's wrong drives changes and fixes things and allows you to enter new sectors and generate new revenue streams and all those good things that marketing is supposed to do. Now, 
if you're not able to do this yourself, which it's clear it's not, you wouldn't want to be your own lawyer. So why would you be your own research firm? However, you can outsource this function very cleanly and neatly because it provides a discrete set of data and recommendations that you can use to apply to your marketing internally. If you have a marketing department, do not have them do research unless they are skilled at it. If they are not skilled at it, hire professionals who are. Very simple. Now, how do you go about finding and hiring a research firm? My recommendations are multifold. Finding them is easy. They're all over the internet. You can do searches for them. You can join research groups. There are plenty of companies, local and national, who can take care of basic primary research with some aplomb and do well at it. However, some are better than others. Some have more experience than others. So you want to ask a few questions. One, how many of these surveys or how many of these quant studies or how many of these qualitative studies have you done? Are you preferential to qualitative or quantitative? What do you set up to provide most readily? What are you most comfortable with? How often do you do each one? What sorts of firms do you service? If you're looking at a research firm that does nothing but looking for lawyers and asking lawyers questions, if you want to sell to lawyers, that's the guy to go to because he understands that whole culture and that whole ethos and is going to add his own insights to formulating those questions and get you real answers. If you're talking to someone who does mall intercepts on product research and you're trying to talk about high-level M&A business services, probably not a good match because what they're going to have is a very lowest common denominator approach to answering and asking the right questions. Not exactly what you want. You need somebody with some savvy in the market sector that you're serving, and you need somebody that understands the ethos and the culture of the people they'll be talking to. What kind of, inter of background do your interviewers have? If you're doing IDIs, if you're doing survey work, if you're doing um, all intercepts, if you're doing focus groups, the background of the interviewer has a great deal to do with how effective they are. If they are from a telemarketing firm and are reading a script, you will not get the kind of answers on IDIs that you want. You need people who are professional researchers, professional interviewers who are trained at teasing information out of people and getting the answers that they want, sometimes in what's unsaid rather than what's said. They need to be able to allow you room to interpret, but they also need to provide steerage for the interviewee to be able to find out what it is they're really trying to say. If you've answered all those questions satisfactorily, now it's time to set up the research protocol and the first order of business is setting goals. Realistically, you want to find out what it is you want to find out. Write it down. Tell the research interviewers exactly what you're trying to accomplish. Say, we need to find out X about our product, about our service. Do they like it? Do they not like it? What is their feeling on it? How aware of it are they? Whatever the goal is, you need to spell that out to the people that are doing the work because they need to keep that goal in mind as they're going about their work. That's going to give you not necessarily bias, but it's going to give you depth of understanding. Um, you also need to tell the researchers why you're doing it and for how long are you going to be doing it. If it's an ongoing program, if it's something that's a one-hit wonder that you're going to just check on one little thing and be done with it, if you're looking for a specific outcome, withhold that information because you are going to bias the research questions. If you're only looking for one specific yes or no answer, it doesn't matter what you get back. You're going to read into it whatever it is you want to read into it, and you're not going to get good results. So we recommend hiring a firm that has experience in the market sector that you're interviewing, that has experience doing the form of research that you want to do, that has experience interpreting the research that you're going to be getting and the information you're going to be gathering, and that has experience in 
interviewing people, not just asking them questions off a script. With those five things firmly in hand, engage the research firm to do exactly what you want them to do. If they are able to offer recommendations for marketing, terrific. Use them or not use them at your peril. Uh, but by all means, have them include them because if they're included in the price, you have the option. And that's really about all we have today. Primary research is one of those things that a lot of people neglect because it's not sexy. They think it's expensive. And we've shown today that it's not only as sexy as you can get because you really know your audience well, and it's a very intimate process, but also that the results last quite a while and they can be very, very cost-effectively gathered and used for years. We appreciate you listening to the Marketing Doctor podcast and hope you'll subscribe. Visit www.themarketingdoctor.com and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you.